So, episode seven. Episode going the seven. distance. Going the distance. Sorry. Dun, 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 dun. Going the distance today. Take me for so a ride. Is that a command? <laughs> Are you trying to tell me what to do? Could you, excuse me, um, could someone me get me out of here? Walmart, it's time to go the distance. Walmart, it's time to go the distance. <laughs> How do I, wait a minute, you're, here we are doing episode number seven. How do I know you're not a droid from another planetary system that is using code words to try to manipulate me? Prove well, yourself. I, <laughs> you caught me. All right. All right. Then we can continue. At least, Good. at least you've been outed as as such. Okay. Off we go. As such. Oh my God. It's almost frightening. So um, this was a week in which uh, a good friend of Mr. Peach ran fifty miles. I think he was lost. And then he got found. He got found. He, I think he was blind. Now he can see. Yeah, indeed. That was just about a week ago. So, muzzle tough, kudos. Wow. That's yeah. amazing to run 50 miles. Yeah, it's amazing to run 50 miles. It's amazing to train to do it, even more so. that The training is just a spectacular experience. And uh, it's a four-month program that I do to build up the endurance to be able to run 50 miles and uh yeah it's it's a fantastic thing while my body lets me i'm going to be doing these so yeah i'm kind of wondering i'm trying to visualize i've done a bit of running uh more in the past than the present but i do a little bit of running uh i have run two marathons in my life um and I remember there comes a point and this is more of a question for you but uh there's like a cadence where your legs your the rhythm the beating of your heart it just sets up a pattern and it becomes very meditative and it's it after a while for me uh although to be honest it took 19 miles during one marathon to get there it's less about you know getting the Gatorade and can I do this and more it becomes a journey in inside yourself absolutely yeah um yeah, I mean, just speaking to the external, there's the, you know, the rhythm of your feet. Um, a buddy of mine who runs these as well talks about one foot in front of the other as the mantra. And, you know, I love life at its most simple. And that is, you know, what it takes to run 50 miles is you have to put one foot in front of the other. And uh, and it also, you know, this, I, I, I like the heel and toe kind of thing. You know, you make sure your heel hits the ground, then your toe. And and uh, so there's that, but that becomes very meditative, you know, and what I love about the run in the woods is it's very soft on the body and uh, it's not on concrete with the sun beating on you. So it's very, yeah, it allows you to get to very deep places when you're running like that. And uh, when I train, I listen to lots of books. I listen to podcasts. I listen to art pod- podcast as we're, as we're, you know, going through it and and working out what we're going to put on the podcast and and uh it gives me a lot of a lot of kind of deep deep time deep reflective time and uh so i think there was a moment when you were 
running the the 50 miles where I called you up, and I think you're somewhere around mile 40 or give or take a few hundred yards uh, or so. You know, humans have gone through in life, you know, this ain't nothing. And I, I think about, like, soldiers and people that, you know, have struggled and had to do these long marches and war and stuff and prisoners and things. And when I run, I do. I keep I keep that stuff in mind. It's like, and that helps me kind of like, all right, keep moving, shut up. Don't, you know, don't let your body, like, start complaining. So, kind of. Wow, that's a trip to listen to. So I also, what I also love about the 50 miler, I just want to say is it, it, it caters to an, you know, a middle age person more. You see a lot of people running. The guy that won it, I think was 46 years old. It also kind of levels the playing field between men and women, like plenty of women are, are way out in front. And, uh, so it's just, a it's a, and it's a very supportive community. I, 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 I highly recommend it. If you ever thought it's crazy, it's not crazy. It's a good. It's a distance running is a is an amazing experience. Amazing experience if your body's able. That said, like if you're just moving, if you have inclination to just move, I I love that. You know the the difference between not moving, not walking, not running, and running even just half a mile or walking a half a mile or, ten, or a tenth of a mile is such a different, such a, 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 a giant difference, you know, and so uh, being a, moving is, is utterly crucial to, to life. About a year and a half ago, I got as sort of a medical, um, uh, straight jacket and, uh, I found it very difficult to walk and I've, I've been having nerve issues uh, ever since um, with my back and so forth. This is not a chance to whine here, but just to say that nonetheless, I am now running um, 1.6 miles every day. It doesn't matter. I love it. Uh, about, I love it. Uh, as, as, um, as we were discussing while you were doing the run, there's a certain discipline to it, a certain toughness. Um, and if it's raining... Okay, that's fine. You still go out there. And so 1.6 miles, I run up very steep hill here. I run up in the woods to a little local castle. Um, uh, it's not a castle. It's just a, a stone structure. I call it, We call it the castle. And run around it once and then run back. It's 1.6. And as you say, Eric, it's not 50. Um, I'd love to be able to do 50. At this point, I can't. But it changes everything about my day, about my consciousness, about my health. Um, it just uh, is it's everything to me. It is. Absolutely. Your body just there's something different, you know, that you feel in your body after you do it. And when your body starts begging you to do it, you know, and, uh, you know, this era, this era, this COVID era, you know, I, I, I think there's people battling that, you know, like where we've gotten some people have gotten sedentary or like don't want to go outside, you know, and, and, uh, it, and all it takes is just getting up, just, just get out and move, you know, even just for 10 minutes, 15. It's a great joy to be a runner. One of the nice things uh, for me when I'm running, um, or doing some other, you know, long distance bicycling or something like that is gives me a chance, uh, as we were discussing earlier about internal processes, to really focus 
Um, I find when I'm at my desk and there's the cell phone going off and there's all these interruptions probably about every 25 seconds, I'm trying to be attentive to everything. Um, but when I'm running, I can sort of pull back from all that and I can really focus deeply on something, on an idea, on a philosophy. And uh, I think made, maybe later on this podcast, you and I will be discussing a, a short story about right. somebody who's running and he's able to focus uh, right. and really helps him clarify his views uh, about something that's actually very emotional and what a great way for instance, if you're running 50 miles or 26 miles or 1.6 miles or around the block for you to sort of, for one, to, to step back and get a different perspective on s some kind of intellectual or phil philosophical issue. That's right. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I run, I run often at the Gettysburg battlefield and I was running there this morning and I'm listening to a book, maybe we'll discuss on this podcast soon, called These Truths by Jill Lepore. And, and as uh, she was just, she was, she's reading the book, you know, I'm listening to the audio book, and she's talking about the Battle of Gettysburg and the Civil War as I'm running this morning on the battlefield, you know. And so there's just this, I, I can't even describe the feeling that, I, that is inside of me. It's a very focused feeling. It's a very reflective feeling and, uh, and very freeing feeling. The Loneliness of the Long-Distance Runner. Now, interestingly, I studied English and American literature in college. That's what I studied. And this was one of the pieces that we read and discussed in a class called Working Class Fiction. Well, I'm really glad you told me about it because I, 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 I must have heard of this. It's definitely, there's, it's definitely in the creative zone. I mean, there's bands that have... Uh, Iron Maiden wrote a song with uh, with this title, and uh, other people have done kind of uh, songs, and it, a movie was made about it, and um, I enjoyed reading it. In fact, I read it twice, and uh, I actually, you know, j just a shout out to readers like me, <laughs> that I was like this in high school, and, and not until I became an adult that I kind of understand my reading the way I read something like this the first time I read it I was a little bit I wasn't totally following what was going on so I I got through and then I read a synopsis you know of the book of the short story and then that helped me a lot and then I went back and read it again you know and so I read it twice and um and anyway that's the way I often take in uh literature I appreciate the way you're describing how you are able to absorb literature um, because everyone it's not like there's one size that fits all like we sit down read a Shakespeare play and everyone does it the same way not so um, right sometimes I thought, I thought something I thought something was not when I was younger I didn't you know in high school I just wouldn't be able to grasp grasp stuff and, I, and it's taken me a while to figure out how I learn and read you know and how i like when i read moby dick like which was just a few years ago i read i would do a chapter and then i'd read the like the the cliff notes to like understand what i'd read and even go back and then i do that i did that all the way through the book and i did that for war and peace and, and that kind of partnering with yourself to read something to, to make sure you really grasp it i think that's really beautiful so, because if you think yeah. about it at least in some of my experiences Sometimes, of course, it depends on the teacher and the, and the the academic environment. But sometimes, literature is associated with a kind of punitive. You better do this, 
you better mm. get an A, you better get it on the first try kind of right. feel as opposed right. to, wow, this is the, like the marrow of existence and philosophy and like, why are we here? And that's all in these beautiful stories. And if we can go back and, and teach ourselves and support ourselves in soaking that stuff up, however, like stand on your head while you're reading or everyone reads in the bathtub or everyone's going to have their own way <laughs> as opposed to some co cookie cutter method. I, right. I love, I love what you just said. It really uh, rang true, rang true to me. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reading out in nature and somehow that opens the door. It's funny because the the thing that when I read it this time, it there's I had very powerful powerful on two different levels. One is the story itself, but also I just had this very powerful connection with. I'm, I just recently turned sixty six zero years old. Kind of scary here, um, and I connected with the nineteen year old. Um, who is studying at U University of California, San Diego, in a working class fiction class um, with Dr. Donald Wessling, uh, this amazing professor. And he was turning us on to D.H. Lawrence and all these working class fiction writers. And this book really struck a chord in me back then. So this is very powerful for me to remember the mark that was 19 years old and how that affected me then and why. And one of the things that resonates with me then and now is that it's about a rebel and it's about somebody who sees the system. He's young. He's a young guy. The protagonist is a really young guy. And just like we were saying about in the earlier segment of this podcast, when you're doing long-distance running – you can really focus on things deeply, and that's what this young runner is doing. And he's thinking about his life. He's thinking about society in ways that a lot of 17-year-olds don't. And he's got it all kind of planned out, and uh, he's thinking about uh, – it's basically a story about class war. Hmm. It's about different classes, and he's from a sort of this sort of class where – he is so sickened by the governor and the, the power class, the people who run the society, that even though doors are actually opening to him to join, come join. They're like very seductive, kind of come to us, you know, be like us. Uh, and so while he's running, he's pondering like, hmm, I could. He's sort of envisioning, abstracting, like I could, he's thinking I could be like them. I could win this race. I could do this. I could get ahead and I could get a cute little cottage and a cute little wife and a cute little this and two cute little kids. And I don't want to give the ending or anything, but he steps back from that and holds true to his class. Hmm. And the reason why I think this, this resonates with me now is because we just went through this very powerful election in the United States the year is now 2020, and it's now mid-November. And so we just had this election. And it's all about class warfare within the United States. I, I definitely thought of that when I was reading this. Um, he definitely has some grievances in uh, uh, and that he expresses, which, uh, you know, there's a lot of grievance going on right now. And I, and I wondered if with the author... If his intent was to make us 
um, uh, identify with this character or to just hear what he's saying, you know, I mean, he does some things that are not likable in the book, in the story, you know, in terms of stealing. And, and that's not, uh, you can, you can say, you know, you can understand his circumstances, but also if I was the guy he was stealing from, I would be like, who's this jerk <laughs> breaking into my bakery? And, um, uh, so, you know, but I guess the, we're being asked, I, not, I don't know if asked, but this type of literature is to try to understand where this guy's coming from is, is my, is my guess. Um, but that said, I totally identified with him. And in fact, I, I just wanted to say, like, I, I marked some points in it where it says, like, he says, I feel like the first and last man on the world, which I, when he's running, you know, he talked about when he's his running and his feelings. And he says, it's a treat being a long distance runner out in the world by yourself with not a soul to make you bad tempered or tell you what to do. And that there's a shop to break like that and enter a bit back from the next street. Like you were just saying, it's like he, he he's, his focus turns to something else. Sometimes I think that I've never been so free as during that couple of hours when I'm trotting up the path out of the gates and turning by that bare-faced, big-bellied oak tree at the lane end. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And I guess this guy's kind of is wrestling with himself, too. He's like, I, I, I don't have to think about how I'm going to pull off my, how I'm going to get more money to survive. You know, I'm just out there in the woods running and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. It's it beautiful, is. and I, it, it's fascinating for me to remember the 19-year-old Mark Laxer mm. really relating to this 19-year-old as I do now, but in a different way. Like now, I sort of like you're saying, it's like, oh my God, this poor guy who's running the bakery. As a 19-year-old, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking more that the governor and the power structure are the real thieves, and this poor guy in the lower quote unquote lower working class is the hero hmm. and the Robin Hood esque character. And now I actually, I see both. Um, it's, it's not, it's a little gray. It's not entirely clear. I, I hear it as kind of like a, this is a reality. Here's this, per, here's this person. And and you you don't have to say is this a good person is he a bad person is what he's doing good is it what is it bad it's more just observing him, and his his state of being and his state of being when he's running and also his state of being when he's scrapping to survive, you know. So it's kind of like a Steppenwolf kind of thing, you know. He's just like he's all these things, and uh, um, and he's also a hero. He's a villain to some people, you know, we won't give away what happens, but he's also a hero. He he says in this, and it's it's daft to think deep, you know, because it gets you nowhere, though deep is what I am, because the long distance run of an early morning makes me think that every run like this is a life, a little life, I know, but a life as full of misery and happiness and things happening as you can ever get really around yourself. Um, but, you know, I, I, I it comes back to, again, this idea for me where um, you have in the United States a group of people who are considered by, I don't know, like 70 million people to be cultural elite because they read books or whatever <gasps> the reason is. And then you have those 79 million cultural elite, quote unquote, people who look at other people as... Uh, 
all sorts of things. Um, and so you have this, this divide, this, um, they're not going to work together. And I think in this story, this short story, the young man is sort of professing. He's very honest, it seems, when he's sharing his ideas. He's basically saying that we hate each other, and that's okay. Hmm. Um, we're, we're in a battle here. He was pretty honest. It wasn't all fluffy saying, no. oh, we'll work it out. No, it's going to be a battle. And... I'm going to lie and I'm going to cheat and I'm going to try to take them down. Um, and it's, it, you know what? It's harsh. It's a harsh story. Um, it's, it doesn't, I don't think it has a happy ending. It certainly is rung with rung. I don't know if I want to say true, but it has really resonated with people over the years. So I don't, it was written in 59, I think. It came out in 60. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, I noticed a, a phrase he used in the in the story, which was keep on keeping on, which for me is Bob Dylan totally from Blood, uh, Blood on the Tracks from uh, right. uh, Tangled Up in Blue. And I always thought that was a great line from Dylan. And then I saw it and I was like, I bet Bill- Dylan read this story. I'm sure he did. I mean, sure. that, that, that guy read a ton when he was first doing yeah. his thing. He soaked up the... the, the, the zeitgeist of the era and he spewed it out and keep on keeping on frozen poetry yeah yeah so um but you know the this story lives on uh the, the loneliness of the long distance runner is the story of america right now so mark last episode we talked about maga seduction and i'm so glad to say that pat conkey is going to talk with us today on the podcast about the book. I'm so looking forward to that. What a brilliant book, and I can't wait to ask him a zillion questions. Let's go to it. Okay. Let's see. There we oh, go. there he is. There Excellent. I I was and am so moved by what what you're sharing. Um, I am very interested to talk with you and find out your sense of where to go. I've heard from quite a few atheists and um, I have like, you know, a couple of Muslim friends who've read the book and they're like, wow, this, you know, I can, you know, like they're, they're being fed by it, you know, and which I think is that's, for myself, that's what I'd like to see. <laughs> but for a lot of the people that's directed towards, that's exactly why they would say, well, you know, yeah, sure. Of course, an atheist is going to like it. You know, I mean, it's like I uh, you'd be surprised at how um, negative some of the some of the input is from the people that I'm trying to reach. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But also a lot of really good feedback, too. But a lot. Of, but what surprised me is the number of people who are not professing Christians who actually gained something from reading it. That was, that was really gratifying to see. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, yeah. from my, I, I was raised Lutheran and I, I certainly have a lot of, uh, that's still in me. And so I, I, I found it interesting to you as an identifying evangelical, I don't often feel connected to the word evangelical or the, right. the and and but I totally connected with you. I connected with you on right. that religious level as a Christian 
or I don't exactly know how I call myself now, but as a, as someone who was raised Lutheran and right. uh, who, someone who definitely identifies with a lot of it, and I could understand what you were talking about. So I thought that was right. really neat. Like you got to me on that level and also yeah. on a human level and also on a political level. So I think I, I, I met you on a bunch of levels reading the book. That's, that's great. Your story of going to the, the Trump rally. Oh, right. And um, being budding in line as right. a way of trying to teach something lesson. that was yeah. amazing that was just yeah. incredible like the people was... were like you can't button line you can you you talk but i don't need to talk anymore <laughs> yeah yeah that was that was um I, I that wasn't a lot of forethought that went into that i i actually intended to actually attend the rally and i had no idea the line would be that long and so i just decided well i guess i have to make my point out here and that was the best way I could think of to make the point was that I, I just, there was a, this sort of line that the way that, that Trump does his rallies is he tries to build a sense of urgency about getting in. And, you know, he loves having the crowds wait. So like just one of many ways that he abuses his people. I mean, the, the target center in Minneapolis, uh, They've been getting people in and out of the Target Center for decades. They know how to do it. It doesn't take, you know, uh, insecure situations too. It's not just the security, but but they basically wait much longer than they should to start letting people in, and then they have this sort of intestinal sort of line that wraps back and forth and back and forth behind the Target Center, and then down the block. And I realized I'm not getting in, and uh, I should have showed up couple hours earlier and so i just decided well i'm going to make my point here and to just a few people who will listen and and so i i just cut across one of those intestinal things where two of them came together and so it cut thousands of people out of the line wow. and i and i just i just stepped across into this other group and they um sort of murmured among themselves or you know like i could hear them behind me just kind of irate and uh, but again these are people that i would just be friends with normally they, they were just they were the kind of people i grew up with kind of people that attend my church you know so i i, I wasn't uncomfortable with them um but they're murmuring and everything and then finally they elected a guy who's like a firefighter so he had a t-shirt on that said that and said um you know he he said can we help you and i was like what He's like, you just cut in line in front of thousands of people. And I said, oh, well, my president taught me that the rules don't apply. Uh, I'm not breaking a law. It's, there's no law against cutting in line. It's just a norm. And wow. what surprised me was how they talked amongst themselves. And I think about, you know, like the Gospels when like the the people who are challenging Jesus would talk amongst themselves, you know, and, and that's sort of what was happening. And, and then they just let me stay in line and which was a little bit disappointing because I kind of would like them to have said, well, norms are important too, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, and so, yeah, I did get to get into, so that was my, that was last October. So that was a year ago, a year and a month ago. And that was my first political involvement in over 20 years because, um, you know, so I went there and I went into the rally and then I just 
yeah, I got thrown out. I started yelling at him. Um, right, right. I, ex- I expected to stay quite a while and then, you know, make some sort of pronouncement. But it just, I listened to the tail end of Pence talking. They were both there that night. And um, I listened to the tail end of him, and I was just, he, that guy, that guy bothers me a lot more than Donald Trump. Wow. Because Mike Mike Pence is the type of guy who appeals directly and and intentionally to the people from my subculture and um, and just lies, mm. you know. And I don't I don't know what he used to be like, but I know what he's like under the influence of Trump. And um, so he was talking, and I was just irate. So then when, when Donald Trump got up, I just stood up behind him. I was on the second level, like right behind him. And I just I didn't say anything intelligent. I just shouted some, <laughs> you're a liar, you're a criminal. And I had to time it out between breaths. He hardly takes a breath, right. you know. Right. And um, I was smart enough, though, to position myself close enough to security that it didn't cause a problem. That security got me before anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was actually a a pivotal event because, Mm. you know, as a pastor for 20 years, I knew there would be people in that audience who attended my church. Uh There would be people who knew me. And so I put on this black shirt that I always wore for preaching. You know, it was almost a sacramental thing. I felt like I had to do this. I didn't, I didn't have any illusions that it was going to change anyone's mind necessarily, but it felt like a sacramental thing that I had to do. And like I said, it was the first political involvement I've had in 20 years. I was a conservative Republican. Back, you know, I voted for Reagan in 1984 when I was 19. And, um, but I got out of politics, you know, I'd been involved in the pro-life movement, stuff like that. But I got out when I went into ministry because I, I really don't believe in mixing the two. I've never liked that. Even though I was, you know, a conservative Republican, I didn't like the mixing of the two. And so I was completely apolitical. I kept, I quit following it right after the Clinton impeachment. So I didn't dip my toes back in until 2016 when I retired wow. when I was software engineering. So, wow, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and things changed a lot in that 20 years. I mean, I think I did too, you know, pastoring a, I, I, my wife and I started a church in the inner city. So pastoring a church, you know, with people who were very different from me, very different backgrounds, uh, St. Paul, you know, the Frogtown neighborhood in St. Paul, where we started it is a refugee community, huge, you know, thousands of, of Hmong refugees and thousands of Somali refugees. And it, it changes you. So then when um, Trump came to Minnesota, he came several times in the last couple months of the election. And every time he hit on that refugee theme. And as a guy who's been pastoring in a neighborhood where refugees are like a huge part, you know, our neighborhood is 40% Hmong, you know, and just thousands of Somalis. And um, to hear him try to divide our our state, where this is something that we love about our state. I mean, I I know you get out into the sticks and people have more issues with like uh, combining the cultures. It's a little bit harder, 
you know, I understand that he plays on those resentments. And um, anyway, so it changed me, you know, being a pastor in that kind of environment. Wow. Wow. I've got so many questions, Pat, um, and a lot of admiration. I guess maybe one place for me to start is, um, are there a lot of folks like you? <laughs> I, or are you I the, would, only bo- uh, the only Jedi standing? <laughs> I, I would say it's that's a yes and no. It depends what you mean by a lot. Um, because, I mean, in 2016, uh, 20% of white evangelicals didn't vote for Trump. Now, that's to me, that's horrifying that 80% did. Uh, I'm still not sure about the exit polls. I think we'll get a better idea this time. Uh, but still, it's got to be at least 70% that voted for Trump. But that means there is, you know, like 20 to 30% of, of just white evangelicals who didn't. Um, I'm... You know, Twitter can be weird because on Twitter, you know, the algorithm works in such a way that you think everybody agrees with you. You know, and somebody somebody came on there once who followed me and said, wow, I I forget how he said this. He said, I finally found um, conservative ex-GOP evangelical pro-life anti-Trump Twitter or something (laughs) like that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, yeah, there's there's a subgroup of everybody, I guess. But I would say, uh, just a short answer to that is there aren't enough people mm. are mm. rejecting Trump. Mm. It, it's it's just it's very disillusioning for me. Um, yeah. This does. I'm curious uh, if you have have you have you had anyone that's read the book that's that you felt like you've swayed. Not that that's the reason that you should have written the right. book. I'm just curious. Have you have you had have you gotten any reaction with someone like wow? Was there a wow moment? So, so not so much from the people that I know personally who I've given the book to. Um, none of the people that I would like to have read it in my personal life read it. I think it was easier for them to just not read it. Mm. Um, or if they read it, they haven't told me that wow. they did, wow. uh, which is hard. But um, wow. but yeah, lots of people online, lots of people, you know, on Twitter or I get I uh, when I first published it every day, I got, you know, five to ten messages from people, you know, emails, uh, you know, comments on Twitter, things like that, people who are reading it and a lot of them actually talked about, hey, I gave this to my uncle and he's not going to vote for Trump anymore. And that, you know, so that did happen. Um, It's not like you say, it's not why I wrote it, but that was part of it. It was more though that I was trying to start a conversation. And I think I did that because um, spoiler alert, I think you guys know, um, Trumpism is not dead. Right. And um, I feel like we have four years to head off fascism in America. Mm. Right. I so I just want to play some small role in helping the people who are my people to not play into that. You know, you know, if I can if I can help sway because because honestly, it's not if if evangelicals would just um, do what they believe and what they say, uh, we'd never have to worry about a Donald Trump again. You Amen. know, it, it, totally. it just, 
it's just it's they are his power base and uh, you can hear me hear me starting to say things like they now in, in the in the book i use the word we all the way through it mm-hmm. but lately that's been harder for me to do wow. because yeah. i um you know, I, I did go off of Facebook, <laughs> which I think a lot of people did um, after the election, just because, you know, some of the conversations with people and stuff. And I just thought, yeah, I don't need this toxicity. And But the last thing I said on there is I'll never forget what I learned about the relationship between evangelicalism and, and politics in this time. You so, know, it's mm. a lot to process. Wow. Wow. So, man. Pat, um, how how do you see for the next four years what your role is in helping uh, the nation, a community veer away from a certain form of fascism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's the question I'm asking myself a lot. I uh, I went off of I, I'm on Twitter still, but I haven't been interacting on Twitter very much during the transition, because I'm just taking some time to process. And um, what I've come to is what I want to do for several months is just talk to people uh, like you guys. Um, I want to do what you're doing, where I just um, talk to people, ask questions. And the questions that I want to be asking are, what are what are some areas where where Christians or believers, people of faith, uh, where people of faith can be helpful in this culture that aside from the polarizing issues, you know, the abortion issue and stuff, it's like, that's a, that's a huge issue. That's a tough nut to crack in terms of getting people to think that they, they can be on the same side if they disagree on that issue. But I'm well past that point now, you know, where it's like, I, I've seen how just deadly that issue has been become the way that it's been used by politicians. So to try to help people of faith to think, how can we be productive contributing members of the culture and, uh, and in regards to politics and, and my guess is it's going to be very much centered around the concept of truth. I think that disinformation is, is the, biggest blight in our culture right now. And unfortunately, Christians are the biggest purveyors of it. And we always said we were the people who um, stood for truth. That was the thing that united all conservative Christians was we might not know the truth, we might not agree exactly on what it is, but we all believed that there was something called truth that you could discern together. And I think that's still a contribution Christians can make, but not until we um, do a major repentance for what we did here. I mean, this this disinformation thing is is uh, the culture is going to go nowhere if we can't get a firm grip on what is truth. You know, like like the, the epistemological question. You know, how do you determine what's true? How do we know what we know? And if it's just that you turn on Fox News and you don't like what they say, so you start listening to OAN, you know, it's like Christians should know better than that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so 
that's where I'm going with it is to try to get at, you know, try to get enough people together who think in these ways and um, try to come to some, you know, partner with some people who are doing this kind of thing to try to just get some sanity again. Uh, but I'm, I'll never identify as an evangelical again after this, unfortunately. My beliefs haven't changed, but I mean, that term has become bastardized. I mean, it, it should be a beautiful term. Um, I, I, agree, I, agree. I, I mean, I, I said this in the, in the last podcast that I, I, I wish I, I could identify I, I t my I don't know if I want to call it my tribe, but I I can speak for a lot of people that it doesn't ring as like a thing that like oh it's a, a beacon or a light for me right and right. but um you know blessings to you Pat because your book <laughs> and you and who you are definitely did and so mm. that's you, you know you got to be the change you want to you know in the world uh, it was that right. Gandhi who said that I, I, I um and uh, so. Or yeah, Bono right. or somebody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or the edge. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I, I, there's so many things I, 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 I think people will just have to read the book, uh, but, but because there's a million things I did want to point out that I'd underline stuff. And I do, you mentioned this earlier and I love what you say about, um, you know, playing a role in making the world a more gracious and life affirming place, uh, for your children. And I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, even with all the ugliness, you know, just make doing, you know, putting your best foot forward to make the world that kind of place right. is, uh, right. is what you're doing. And, uh, yeah. so yeah, I would, appreciate that. I, I would say, I would ask you guys, are you as, um, I don't want to use the word frightened, but are, is you, are you as concerned as I am when I talk about having four years to head off fascism? Does that resonate with you from what you're seeing? I'm with you. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about the 70 million voters um, and why they look past quote unquote bad behavior. It's frightening behavior. Right. Um, have, has nobody read history? Right. The, the bad behavior is just a distraction, you know, like a lot of the performative sorts of things that, that he does. And then people are able to say, well, I don't really like the tweeting or I don't like the, you know, whatever. And it's just all a distraction from just the deep ways that he's subverting our, um, our system, <laughs> our political system. But, but I would say it's much deeper than that. It's our, it's, you know, at the very core of our understanding of what America is. Uh, and again, I go back to truth, you know, but like from an evangelical perspective, one thing that's invisible to people on the left, I think, is how toxic it's become within evangelical circles to identify as a Democrat or it's not just a disagreement on policies anymore. It's, I mean, the thousands of emails that I got or, you know, or Facebook messages or whatever from people who told me as I was writing this, you know, that I was going to go to hell and all that sort of thing. Um, that was disconcerting. But what's much worse than that are the really intelligent, um, smart, people that I looked up to 
um, who seemed like mature Christians who are making the same arguments with just a little bit more uh, intellectual, you know, veneer. Uh, there's a guy, a friend of mine who's in his 70s, I'll call him Paul, because that's his name. And <laughs> he's, he's, he's out at Berkeley um, doing ministry at Berkeley uh, with students doing really good work out there, he and his wife. But I think he's become so enmeshed in this, this like war against the left because he's out at Berkeley. And I think in his imaginings, and I bring him up because I think he's typical of a lot of the thought leaders in evangelical circles, because um, he's a brilliant guy. Um, in his imaginings, he's seeing the left as take Berkeley take the most extreme people at Berkeley and then extrapolate that out 20 or 30 years with zero opposition. And what would happen to America then? And it's like, Oh, wow. That's, you know, that, and he writes these sorts of things on Facebook and then all of these just kind of nice people who are friends of mine who went to my church and stuff say, Oh, well said, Paul. And so I've had to write on there. No, this is not well said. And um, so he and I would get into it, like in public, and I wouldn't normally do that, but it's like there are so many people like this. That thinking from a Christian perspective leads to fascism. That's, that's um, what I said um, in the book and in an earlier video that I made, is that when Trump held up that Bible at the point when mm. he had cleared, mm. cleared that square, and he held up the Bible, that showed that his organizing principle is going to be um, to protect America from the godless left, to protect white Christianity in America. And that was the one piece that was missing in calling him a fascist for me, because I'm really careful, obviously, about calling people that, I mean, especially as a conservative, you'd, you'd hear that thrown around a lot. Um, but that was the piece that was missing. The authoritarianism was always there, but sort of this organizing cultural principle, Christians, white evangelical Christians are the ones that are giving him that. And, and all it'll take is a smarter version of him to come along and to see how how we just will flock to the person who who offers us that, and that's just to answer your question. Um, over the next four years, just any way that I can stand against that, that's what I'll be doing. Wow, that's so deep. That is so deep. Yeah, it's it's like intelligence and learning doesn't necessarily protect you. Right. You know, it's like it's helpful. Right. Uh, but Paul's an example of if you have these presuppositions about the other um, that can get twisted and turned into almost a hatred of the other, mm. um, that trumps any sort of intellectual reasoning. And I think Trump is good at um, appealing to that just base nature inside of us that's just like, I don't like people who are different, or I don't like that, you know, I'm afraid of the, I mean, things that, that we don't even articulate to ourselves. He's good at just like surfacing those. And, um, and it's been a learning experience to see how powerful all of those things are. I've learned this, I've learned this. Um, 
at first with Donald Trump, what I thought was that he appealed to the worst of us, the worst people in our culture. And I've seen over the last few years, it's not true. He appeals to the worst in each of us. Oh. And that's the thing that's like, I think chapter two of my book is what I was talking about with that, that he, it's not that, that you can say, oh, look, look at all those Trump supporters. They're the worst people. It's no, those are the people in whom some of their worst aspects have been activated. Mm. But I've got all those same things inside of me on some level, you know, right. like every human being does yeah, on yeah, some yeah. level. And so a lot of the, you know, like getting off of Twitter for a little bit, getting off of Facebook for a little bit, even some of that is just healthy so that we don't just get so activated even in opposition to him. I think there's a sense that if we're looking at the species, I can't say how a Christian pastor would see what I'm about to say. I will leave that in your worthy hands, Pat. <laughs> I do feel that amongst humans, there is a sheep-like quality to us in that we're a social animal. I'm, I'm being a little bit scientific here. I'm not a scientist, by the way, but um, I did a, a bit of studying of biology and sociology and anthropology to research one of my books. Mm. And there is a sense that social creatures do have embedded in their social systems a kind of hierarchical who's going to be the alpha, who's mm -hmm. going to... Uh, and there's a little tussle, and then once the animals decide or agree upon who the alpha is, then they stop fighting. So it actually becomes an efficient system and it it uh, moves through nature and is, mm. is apparently accepted. Right. I think bees have that, coyotes, wolves, um, chimpanzees certainly have that, mm. and I think humans have it. And I think Trump has, a, uh, Donald Trump has a, uh, asserted himself as the alpha and people good people, smart people, kind people, powerful people have watched him and his body language and his face painting. And there's something very primal about it. Like you were saying, right. Eric, there's this kind of this energy that um, he will fly in the face of norms. And it sort of showed an underbelly of obeyance, of, of sheepness in, in the people uh, of the United States more so than maybe one would expect mm -hmm. uh, and what the polls show. The reason for me to say all this is we were just discussing like, all right, what do we do about this? You know, we've got four right. years and so on. And one of the things I think about, because I'm wondering what to do myself for the next four years, I know what I've done the last year and it's been very mm -hmm. intense for me um, to push back with this this book, right. Rama Trauma Trump, and trying to get it out there and making videos and trying to make it accessible and, and so mm -hmm. on. But it occurs to me that one path forward is to show leadership. Mm -hmm. um, how I'm not sure how that maybe means starting an NGO and you're in charge, Pat, and Eric and I will help you or whatever. I have no idea what it involves. Maybe it's Melissa Joe and we all right. help with, but there's some gap. There's some leadership vacuum. Right. 
I don't, I think it's brilliant that you've been standing up to this bully. I'm wondering where the, I, I don't know, like it's CNN or, you know, Fox or where the big powerful voices are, or is it just gonna be little blips on the screen to take on this huge bully? I'm not scared of his bluster. It's a little bit like from The Wizard of Oz, but right. I almost feel like each of us or all of us working together need to take on leadership roles. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree with your uh, assessment of it. I mean, and you, you mentioned as a pastor, you didn't know what I would think of that. But it, I mean, the Bible is so clear that we are sheep. Humans are sheep. And you know this from your experience in a cult. Um, I've known this my entire time that I was in ministry, I was always careful, even careful about the way that we do worship music and uh, careful about the ways that I, I never set up us versus them types of scenarios in my preaching or anything like that, because it's really easy to draw a crowd that way. It's really easy to amass following. Uh, people will follow leaders like that, wow. but it's, it's the leaders, it's the leader's responsibility, not to do that. And, and Jesus, you know, I quote this in the book where he, he looks out upon, you know, his people and he, and he, he weeps because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That was a condemnation of the shepherds. And, uh, I, in my book and in my life, I don't think I'm ever mean or unpleasant in anything that I say about a Trump voter, for instance, because uh, these are just my people. But I, I'm actually quite mean in the book a couple of times to some of the Christian leaders because mm. Christian leaders are going to be held to account for what the way that they've just caved in. And um, I don't think it's through fear. I could almost understand if it was through fear, but it's through greed mm. and lust for power. And, and I think um, some of them just a deep hatred of the other. And that's not a good look. That's it's not just not a good look. It's not a good reality. But I have no other way to explain it. Christian leaders have failed us, but not all. I mean, I have lots of friends in ministry who agree like I, you know, believe like I do. It's a lot easier to be no longer pastoring a church and to say these things. I have a lot of them who are like, just honestly, I know that it would destroy their church if they spoke against Trump. And that's a hard decision to make. Oh my gosh. Where I'm just asking questions to try to get at where, where can we find sanity in this mess? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that say Embrace 
Actually, want to pass this off to someone else to sing this right now, and I'm gonna. I, I, so many things I had wanted to mention in your book, but you wrote about um, George Floyd. I thought was really incredible. Mm, yeah, my hometown. Yeah, I know. And you said, "Where was Jesus in George Floyd's final seconds of consciousness, as he observed himself stretched out, struggling to breathe, fading, aware he had been reduced to a helpless public spectacle, knowing he was dying alone? Where was Jesus?" under Officer Chauvin's knee. Um, one of the most important things that you said in the book, so many important things, and I just wanted, I, if I can, just as I continue, I wanted to share something uh, here. Amazing grace. Oh, yeah. Amazing grace. Amazing <laughs> grace, how sweet the sound that saves. Amen. Yeah, uh, wow. that was of course President Obama singing at at the funeral. Uh, 
after the uh, mother manual killings. And I, I just as a point, I think of contrast, it, just in terms of leadership and what that meant. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, I'm so glad that there's only about, what, 58 days left of this current administration. And none of these politicians are saints, but there are a lot of really good people who have been in leadership roles like that. And I think we're going to get another one here. Pat Conkey, a total treat to have you with us. MAGA Seduction, Resisting the Debasement of the Christian Conscience. Well, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you guys for, for having me. This is really, really a privilege. Thank you. I think in summary, there's work to be done. Yep. That was a starting point for me. The rally I went to was a starting point. The book was the second thing, but it's not the end. It's, there's a lot of work to be done. I, I don't know if you noticed that when Giuliani was giving a press conference, <laughs> Mr. Peach actually got squished on his forehead and was dripping down his side. He was actually, yeah, it was, he did that with intent. Impeach he did it with intent, and it was part of the impeachment. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was actually it was grease from that, uh, from the uh, total landscaping lawnmower. Yeah, they totally was running down his head, and uh, and uh, Mr. Peach was trying to take pity on him and trying to, you know, <laughs> it was a cover story. It's all was peaches. that a pit or was this just a pittance? <laughs> Good riddance to the pittance. Mr. Pittance. <laughs> I, I think I think what we're saying could be better. I think maybe we just need to start again. Okay, ready? One, two, ready, go. Um, <laughs> start again. So, start again. If Year zero. Have, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a here's a yet another divide. Ready? Yes. Those who know yes. and those who don't know and those who are certain that they know, people who are certain that they don't know, and those who are ascertained that they are justifiably insane. Hmm. It's your zero. I don't understand language. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like this. If consciousness is bubbling sun, up. Do it in like motions, like flags, please. Flags, yeah. So if like consciousness is bubbling up, when's it gonna start? Oh, I just saw a bubble of it. There it was. There was a little bit right there. There's this little it. bubble there. Yeah. Just just a little bub. A little bub coming up from um I, I I I'm just trying to visualize if you have somebody who's so out there that Donald Trump says that that is too far out there. <laughs> right. And he's got to fire his own lawyer. I would say that they're, I mean, if, if Fox News is saying that that crazy ass woman is too far out there, I would say if, 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 if what's his it's name, code. if Tucker Carlson is calling it too far to the right and too out there, I would, I would give Tucker um, all the freedom he needs to get through the day. I, I hate to break it to you, but all of that is code for uh, letting her know that she needs to refill her big gulp cup with, um, I don't know, 
what is it that they're feast that Hillary Clinton egg, feasts egg, on? Egg, egg McMuffin, yeah. <laughs> egg McMuffin. That's right. Yeah. And, and and Tom Hanks and, and President Obama feast on lizards, you know, all lizards, lizards and, yeah. and and yeah. and babies Lizard and things people. like that. So it's yeah. just letting her know that she needs to get a refill. That's all. Right. Yeah. Right. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all code. code. It's everything it's is code. code. And so is Kofefe. It's all code. Right. <laughs> and by the way, we don't really need a democracy. That's, you know, sort of been evolving for thousands of years. Why don't we just have some crazy ass people just make up shit? Right. Just make up stuff. And, so and then much more make, interesting. Right. And then and why can, not? Yeah. Why not give them? Why don't you give crazy people the power and not a system that has evolved first in Rome and Greece and ancient Greece and, you know, through the Western world? Why not just destroy all that? Makes sense. It does. Yes. Yeah. They've got very good intentions. They're just trying to save the children. That's all they're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, let's just you know leave it at that. Take a slice of pie. Um, put some whipped cream on it. Um, if you want sprinkles, you can have some. But you do. We are rationing right now. So. Um, oh my God! Hold the, hold that thought. Someone just ate SpongeBob. Hold on. Oh, gross. Oh, wait. Are you kidding me? No, somebody just ate SpongeBob. SpongeBob Square yes. Pants? That one? Yes. Someone yeah. ate him? Yeah. Yep. Again, that's code. I just want to tell you. That's, I was just saying that that's... everything, pretty much everything now is code. Right. And it no, all there's... comes back to Hillary. Why? So exactly. why are people so obsessed with Hillary Clinton? Do people have a crush on her? Is it something sensual? Are, are I was these just people coughing. Who, I wasn't saying anything. Maybe these people don't have any other types of way to get out their uh, energy. Wink, wink. Know it to me. Know it. Say no more. Say no more. You think so? Right, right. Say no more. Wink, wink. Nod, nod. Eh? Eh, hoser? It could, I think if you just if you go uh, like tomorrow morning, if everyone yeah. just goes out and gets that McMuffin you were talking about, right, and right. and and the big gulp, and you just ingest it, cup it, you cup it, cup it, and, and, and take one. <laughs> no, nudge, nudge, poke, poke. Say no more. Take one in your pocket, one in your belly. Oh, one in your pocket. Get it. <laughs> Uh, sorry, keep going. Code. I'm sorry. Wait, do you do you have the code? Actually, there, do you have the sheet I sent you? The, all of the, 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 the... sheet. <laughs> sheet, sheet, sheet. Yes, I get it. I get it. No, it's no, it's poke, poke. Bully, bully, bully. To decode everything, you have to look at the at the paper. Do you see? Do you, paper. <laughs> Big big paper. <laughs> okay, well, I guess you missed it. Egg McMuffin means yeah. right. What's, you see it on there? I can't say that loud, or else you know, no, 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 no. Don't yeah. say that, man. Don't say it. And when and <laughs> when, when I say Hillary, if I say Hillary with the first accent on the first, then you you, you oh, see that, that means you know. pilloried. <laughs> and if I oh say Hillary, if I say Hillary. Do you see the code? You see what that means? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Everything now is is code, and we're pointing. It's just you know, Rube Goldberg. He mm-hmm. had like ten children, and then the children of Rube Goldberg 
had strings had tied. Children. Had ten more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's string theory. Right. Oh, I get it. Oh my god, it all ties together. Get it? Nudge, nudge, poke, poke, and all. Ew. So, um, can I ask you a question, Eric? Where does uh, the rubber code. ducky? Uh, yeah, no, this is totally in code. Um, it's in code <laughs> impeached. <laughs> Why no news? <laughs> details on the half hour. Uh, where does the rubber ducky come in? Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> that is actually, um, you know, kind of like Scientology. That answer is in like the sixth stage, and you have to, you know. The secrets the have been revealed. The thetons are coming. The thetons are coming. <laughs> so you have to the wait. The thetons are coming. Tra la la. So if you go, you leave that rubber ducky uh-huh. for the end, and then that answer comes. So you you can't ask that now. I mean, come on. Oh, is that what it, is that where Sus- Sesame Street is one big coded show then? <laughs> sort of like rubber ducky, you're my thetan. You make transporting to other psychotic realms so much fun. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully proud of. You're you, getting too uh, close to the truth. I just no, 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 it's you. too close. It's Eric, do you know what I just said? It's a little too close for comfort. I'm just The lizards you. in the pizza shop, DuPont. Yeah. P- lizard pizza? Yes. Like pe- pepperoni, but... Pepperoni and lizard, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. It's good with a little bit of avo. <laughs> a little bit of avo? Mm. Yeah, you need a little bit of green. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, it's not easy being green. Ah, waka waka. So lizard, avocado. Wait, you call it avo? Avo. Lizard avocado. Avocado, but if you avocado. say avo. Okay, avo, just, just so we're clear on code. Avo means you know what I'm talking about. Kado yeah, yeah. is the other thing. Right, so, that's the other thing. But you, it's like the Masada. You see, this comes back to ancient Israel. The Masada Asakada Mada Avocada. Hava Nagila. No, no. And Hava Nagila. And they just say, can I have two of those? <laughs> or is you just glad to see me? Masada um, Flofada. What was it? Masada. Flofada Alalada Bakada Fi Fi Bobada. Hakuna What's Matata. a Mada? <laughs> Have, have you hiked Masada? <laughs> have you done that? Have hike? I gone to Masada? Yeah. I've you been... mean carne masala? <laughs> carne masala? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're mixing up your... Mexican food with Indian food. I know what I'm doing. It's all code. <laughs> you're, you're real, are you straying because you're afraid of what we're getting close to right now? I feel like you're kind of... This is classic, you know change the subject kind of behavior where you pretend you're not changing the subject but you are and it's all because of the oh my god eric is that a flying chicken up there to the left cluck you man you're getting too it's too oh cluck cluck you and your peaches that came from the other side of the aisle